DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Helen Sini in Germany. On today's program, Spain's election ends in deadlock, but will a fugitive separatist leader be the kingmaker? Naturally, the first thing that his party are saying is if you want us to play ball, we need two things. We need an amnesty for all of the people that were involved in that referendum and of course an amnesty for Puigdemont so he can come back uh, into Spain. And the second thing they're saying is that at some point we would then want to have an official legal referendum for Catalan independence. Devastating wildfires spark Greece's biggest ever evacuation and putting the father of modern genetics back on the map. Those stories and more coming up on the program. Opinion polls and pundits don't always get it right, and Spain's general elections last Sunday are a case in point. It had been widely predicted that a conservative and extreme right-wing coalition government would be voted into power. That wasn't the outcome. The opposition right-wing popular party did win the vote, but it fell short of a governing majority. The far-right Vox party lost seats. Socialist Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has now taken over as caretaker of an interim government. So now it's down to horse trading by the left and the right to see who can form a majority with coalition parties. And to make things even more interesting, the fugitive leader of a party which supports independence for the region of Catalonia could be kingmaker. Well, to make sense of all this, I'm joined by our Spain correspondent, Ashish Sharma. Ashish, an inconclusive election result, but what is clear is that the right did not romp into power. But there was a clear surge in support for the far-right Vox Party in the run-up to these polls. So why did voter support for it evaporate so quickly? Well, I think there are two main reasons. Firstly, they came into power in the municipal elections in some regions, and people have begun to see some of the policies that they want to put into place. Things like making it difficult for women to have access to abortion, uh, crazy things like cancelling plays because uh, they're about transgender or, or transgender ideas, or banning movies because they show women kissing, removing LGBTQ-coloured benches and flags. Uh, and suddenly people are beginning to see oh, this is what happens in reality. One thing is rhetoric, the other thing is in practice. And I think the other thing also is, is that in the case of Vox, they rose to power, and in 2019, when they won 52 seats in Parliament, uh, they really were at the height of concerns around Spain for separatism, for Catalan independence. But since then, that's kind of ebbed down a bit, partly because Pedro Sanchez has had the policy of dialogue and there hasn't been this agitation. And now they lost 600,000 votes in this last election. And most of those went back to the Partido Popular, which is really where they are from originally anyway. And I think it's a combination of those two factors, really, that has seen them lose so badly. And also, I think their policies have just not resonated. I mean, they, they are climate crisis deniers. And with what we're seeing around Europe at the moment, that's certainly something that doesn't resonate with the general population. Well, Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez called these snap elections in the hope that he could strengthen support for his socialist party, which suffered you know, really heavy losses in local and regional elections earlier this year. I mean, it was a gamble, but these elections have only muddied the political waters in Spain. So can you outline possible scenarios for us? 
Well, there are three scenarios. One is that somehow the Partido Popular, which won the election, but together with the help of the, party, the, 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 the Vox Party, don't have it enough to get a majority. You need 176 seats, uh, and, and they don't get near there. Uh, so the one option for them is, is that the Socialist Party, they decide to abstain, and so they can run a minority government. But that's impossible. That's just never going to happen. I mean, the Socialists won 122 seats. Sumar, the left-wing platform that's you know aligned with them, won 33 seats. All of these parties would have to go stum uh, to, in order for them to govern. The other option is, is that uh, Pedro Sanchez, who, if he unites all of his core votes, which is including some of those uh, Basque and Catalan parties, can have one more seat in Parliament to uh, the Partido Popular. Now, in order for him then to gain the presidency, it would need one party in particular who have seven seats to abstain. And then it would just come down to a, a clear a battle of numbers. Who has more seats in Parliament? Well, Pedro Sanchez would have that one seat more. And so he could then form a, a kind of a minority government, if you like, because no one has reached that uh, margin of 176. But in order for that to happen, this party called Junts, which is a Catalan party, would have to say, we abstain from this vote. And so, in effect, their seven votes don't count. And then you just go with what's left. But if they decide that they don't want to abstain and they cause an objection to this, then the other option is we go back to an election which will have to happen within or after three months of this last election, so sometime in November or December. So those are really basically the three scenarios that await the Spanish public uh, in August, around the 17th of August, when Parliament recesses and gets back, or finishes its summer holidays and gets back. Well, let's hear a bit more about the the possible kingmaker, Carlos Puigdemont, uh, the fugitive uh, Catalan separatist. I mean, he's likely to play hardball for any support he gives. So could these elections reignite the push for Catalan independence? Uh, to be honest, I was having a chat with a political journalist friend of mine just a few days before the election, and he said to me, oh, can you... Tell me who do you think is the most insignificant, forgotten about politician in Spanish politics at the moment. And I, I gave him a couple of names, all wrong. He said, no, try Carlos Puigdemont. And we kind of laughed about it because Puigdemont um, was the president of the Catalan uh, government in 2017 and decided to go for an illegal uh, referendum for independence for Catalonia. I say illegal because it was against the rules of the Spanish constitution. So he basically broke the law. They were told not to do it. They went ahead and did it. And as a consequence, the Spanish government took over the Catalan government. All the leaders who'd organized this uh, referendum, including Carlos Puigdemont, fled abroad. He went to Belgium. And since 2017, he's been in Belgium in exile because there is a European arrest warrant out for him. If he sets foot into Spain, he'll be arrested. So naturally, the first thing that his party are saying is, if you want us to play ball, we need two things. We need an amnesty for all of the people that were involved in that referendum, because there are several who are still imprisoned. Uh, they have to all be absolved. And of course, an amnesty for Puigdemont so he can come back uh, into Spain. And the second thing they're saying is that at some point, we would then want to have an official legal referendum uh, for, for Catalan independence. Now, you look at that scenario, and if Pedro Sanchez decides grant them that, then you really are in a boiling pot here, because then you can see a resurgence of the right again, calls about, oh my goodness, here we go again with this idea of uh, Catalan independence, the, the dissolution of the Spanish state, and 
everything else that goes with it. So these are scenarios which are going to be very, very difficult for Pedro Sanchez or certainly uh, Feiju, the leader of the Partido Popular, to fulfill. And really, it's a case of, I suppose, everyone getting back on August the 17th, when the holidays are over for uh, the Spanish Parliament, to see really what the next uh, steps are, are, are going to be taken. Ashish Sharma speaking from Madrid. And he'll be keeping us up to date on these political developments in Spain over the coming weeks, possibly months. Southern Europe has endured blistering temperatures this summer. There have been devastating wildfires in many regions, destroying vast swathes of land and forcing locals and tourists to flee the flames. On Wednesday, Greece's armed forces announced three days of mourning after two Air Force pilots were killed when their waterbombing plane crashed on Evia, the country's second-largest island. Their deaths were the first known fatalities after scores of fires ravaged Greece and some of its most popular islands, sparking the country's biggest ever evacuation. Antti Karasava has more from Athens. Wildfires are not uncommon in Greece, but this year they've turned viciously catastrophic, forcing even the Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis to declare war against flaming fronts the nation was trying to face down, as he put it. He warned it would be a difficult summer for the country because of climate change. But climate change does not trigger fires. It adds to them. Firefighters here have been battling nearly 90 outbreaks in the last week alone, ravaging iconic tourist locations like the island of Evia, where the water-dropping plane crashed, Corfu along the country's western Ionian front, and roads on the flip side of Greece's west, where the worst fronts remain unchecked. The emergency situation on roads triggered the biggest evacuation in history here, with the pull-out orders seeing thousands of sun-seekers spilling onto the streets with their swimsuits and flip-flops, leaving passports, money and clothes behind to seek safety. Some were seen running amok, clambering onto buses and trucks, others patiently waiting in queues, men kissing their wives and children goodbye because they were given first preference in the evacuation. Authorities say some 19,000 were evacuated, Unofficially, though, they speak of over 30,000. Smaller-scale evacuation orders were later given to locals and tourists on the islands of Corfu, Evia and the Peloponnese Peninsula. The fires torching Corfu have been so intense they could be seen across the waters in Albania and smoke billowing from Santorini could be seen snaking down to Libya on satellite imagery. Midweek, all eyes were on the country's biggest island and flagship of tourism, Crete, where some of the highest temperatures have been recorded. The authorities say they suspect arsonists are responsible for some of the fires on roads. Some locals have spoken of groups of young men zipping around wooded areas, hurling gas canister bombs and other flammable materials to spark the fires, destroying homes and ruining the summer holidays of thousands. Antikarasava, DW Athens. The International Monetary Fund estimates that Russia's exit from the Ukrainian grain deal could drive global grain prices up by 10 to 15 percent. 
The deal had allowed Ukraine to export around 33 million tonnes of grain by sea to world markets and was a significant factor for global food security. The deal was brokered by the United Nations and Turkey last year. And the spotlight is again on Ankara and its role in trying to get Russia to return to the negotiating table for the continuation of grain exports. As Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul, Turkey is pinning its hopes on diplomacy to prevent the war in Ukraine spilling over into the Black Sea. The Turkish flagship TQ Samsung announcing its passing through Istanbul. It was the last ship carrying grain from a Ukrainian Black Sea port after Russia withdrew from an agreement that has guaranteed safe passage to ships from the war zone. The landmark deal was brokered by Turkey and the United Nations last year. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is calling for the grain exports to continue. Such a call would likely need support from the Turkish Navy, which is only second to Russia in the Black Sea, says Yuruk Ushuk. He's a geopolitical analyst in Istanbul with the Washington-based Middle East Institute. I've been proponent of this from the very beginning. There are some difficulties. The first one will be the insurance question, but we already hear from the Ukrainian government that Ukrainian government set aside a serious amount of money, uh, like half billion uh, euros, to provide uh, possible insurance. But Moscow is warning any cargo ship seeking to export Ukrainian grain will be considered hostile and to be potentially carrying weapons. Russian forces have already started pounding Ukrainian ports like Odessa after withdrawing from the grain deal. Turkish presidential advisor Mesut Çarşın of Istanbul's Yeditepe University says Ankara is wary of risking a confrontation with Moscow, given its naval strength in the Black Sea. The Russian naval fleet is very powerful here. They have a lot of battleships here. They have more than 10 submarines here. This should be a big headache for the NATO and for Turkey security. And this will be uh, triggering uh, is a kind of blow-up between the Turkey-Russia relations. If Ankara doesn't offer assistance, other NATO members may want to step in to secure the continuation of Ukrainian grain exports. But Turkey is the gatekeeper to the Black Sea under the international Montreux Convention. And some analysts say it will be very reluctant to allow warships to enter the war zone. Serhat Guvench is a professor of international relations at Kardahas University in Istanbul. Those ships would make very easy targets and probably their presence uh, would not decrease but increase the risk of escalation between NATO and Russia. And that's the reason why indeed Turkey has suggested its allies and others that they should reconsider their plans uh, to send in warships into the Black Sea. Since the onset of the Ukrainian conflict, Ankara has blocked Russian and NATO naval ships from travelling between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Vessels from countries which have ports on the Black Sea are allowed through. This stance is part of what Ankara calls its balanced approach, explains Hussein Baja of the Ankara-based Foreign Policy Institute. The American uh, view to confront Russia is understandable, but... Uh, 
Turkey is uh, very, very careful here uh, not to touch the security interest of Russia so directly as the uh, United States of America and other European countries do. So Turkey will have a unique position in this respect. As we say, neither West nor the East, but Turkish security interest, which is uh, keeping the balance there. Milli Savunma Bakanı Hulusi Akar, Ukrayna adına Altyapı Bakanı Oleg Antonio Guterres. The signing ceremony of the United Nations grain deal in Istanbul last year was a diplomatic triumph for Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He helped secure the agreement using his good ties with both the Ukrainian and Russian leaders. Since then, Erdogan has persuaded Moscow not to end the deal on several occasions. And he says diplomacy can again find a solution. Presidential advisor Mesut Jarshan warns diplomacy must succeed given the escalating tensions in the region. Black Sea, even though a close and small area, one of the most dangerous areas in the world, someone has to be open the gate with the Kremlin. This is with Turkey. Turkey is the world's largest exporter of flour and one of the largest exporters of pasta. So it stands to lose if the Ukrainian grain exports do not resume. At the same time, Ankara is worried the conflict will spill over into the wider Black Sea region. But as long as ships carrying Ukrainian grain are prevented from leaving port, world food prices are predicted to surge. And that will increase the pressure to find a solution. Doreen Jones, DW, Istanbul. And just a reminder to send us your feedback on the show. Our email address is insideeurope at dw.com. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Helen Sini in Germany, and you're listening to Inside Europe. Does the name Gregor Johann Mendel ring any bells? I must admit it didn't with me. But he's regarded as the father of modern genetics. And even in his homeland, his name is not as well known as perhaps it should be. Mendel was a biologist, meteorologist, mathematician and an Augustinian friar at St Thomas's Abbey in Brno, in what is now the Czech Republic. And for several years, a campaign has been underway to make Mendel a household name. Rob Cameron travelled to Brno to find out more. In the courtyard of a 14th century monastery, local children try out a number of fun activities related to genetics and DNA. There are stalls where they can code their names in brightly coloured coral beads or race against time to replicate a line of DNA from the familiar double helix. This is the annual Mendel Festival, held in Brno's oldest monastery complex in Mendel Square, opposite the Johann Mendel Grammar School and home to the Mendel Museum 
of genetics. And now there are two new landmarks commemorating him, a modern statue unveiled earlier this year, an artistic representation of the pea plants Mendel cross-bred in the monastery greenhouse, and an equally modern steel and glass reinterpretation of that same greenhouse, opened last year to mark the 200th anniversary of his birth. For architect Andrzej Hibik, who designed the building along with co-founder Michal Krzysztof, this place has a very special significance. I'm maybe a little bit, in this case, exceptional because I was attending in this particular place my painting and, and sketching courses. So when I was six years old, I, I started with those art courses. So when I was a child, I was always wondering what kind of uh, rectangle uh, in the middle of the garden I'm sitting in and uh, what kind of story is behind that rectangle. So. I was just wondering, and there was certain curiosity in a little boy mind, what's under the ground and what is the story of this place about. And I just started wondering. So 30 years later, when we got from the monastery invitation into this project, I was super happy that I could be personally involved as one of the main authors of this, of this project. And I think the, the, the personal approach in here was, uh, was uh, very highly influenced by my little child experience. Hibik and Krzysztof's greenhouse, which replaces the original that was destroyed in a storm in the 1870s, was conceived as a multi-purpose space, not for growing pea plants or any other plants for that matter, but more intellectual pursuits, such as this lecture on RNA during the Mendel Festival. Mendel's theories of biological inheritance, highly controversial when he first propounded them in the 1860s, were revisited in the 1900s, and the laws of Mendelian inheritance now form the core of modern genetics. Mendel himself was an Augustinian friar and scientist, living and working in what was then the Margravate of Moravia, which belonged to the lands of the Bohemian crown, which themselves were just one part of the mighty Austro-Hungarian Empire. The abbot of St Thomas's was a German speaker who learnt fluent Czech and described himself as a German-speaking Moravian, but as Jakub Sarda from an NGO set up to spread his name explains, Mendel's Germanness has often worked against him here in the Czech Republic, especially during the recent past. Because during the communist era, Mendel was not one of the most famous uh, scientists here in Czech Republic. Is that because of his Germanness? There's uh, two things, the Germanness, but also uh, that he was the priest and even the abbot because communists fought against uh, the Catholic Church. Yeah? So maybe it was worse that he was an abbot, that he, he was actually a German-speaking Moravian, as he said about uh, himself. Yeah. <laughs> that is slowly changing, and Gregor Johann Mendel now receives full recognition for his work. This was notably lacking in his lifetime, apart from a couple of lectures at Brno's Natural History Society, his paper was largely ignored by the scientific community, most notably by his contemporary Charles Darwin, who was unaware of the work being carried out by an obscure monk in Moravia, work which today is regarded as seminal. For DW, this is Rob Cameron in Brno.
And for more stories from around the continent, head to our website, dw.com. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Helen Sini in Germany. Inside Europe, and I'm Helen Sini in Germany. In the next half hour, we're bringing you an episode of DW's environmental podcast, On the Green Fence, hosted by my colleague Neil King. Now, Neil's been taking a closer look at the pros and cons of cultivated meat. Our current food systems are unsustainable and ill-equipped to face the challenges posed by climate change. And it's no secret that meat is particularly problematic in this regard because it's very carbon-intensive to produce. Some scientists predict that demand for meat could grow by up to 70% by the year 2050 and that lab-grown or cultivated meat could get us out of this pickle. But is that really the case? And what would have to change for us to embrace this product? Neil's been finding out more. My name is Neil King. Before we get started on lab-grown meat alternatives, let's just get a handle on how big the problem is right now that we're facing when it comes to conventional meat and dairy production. Hi, I'm uh, Dr John Lynch. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oxford, now based in the Department of Zoology, and I'm interested in sustainable land use and the impact of agricultural production. Mm-hmm. John, your research, um, I understand it also focuses on the climate change effects of meat and dairy production in particular, right? Um, That's right, yeah. Could you give our listeners an idea, you know, just how detrimental meat and dairy are for this planet? Yeah, so there's all different ways of generating these numbers that will tell you slightly different things. Um, when it comes down to it, if we if we run our climate models with and without these emissions from meat and dairy, we'd be looking at something like the order of magnitude, a quarter to maybe a third of overall warming attributable to meat and dairy production. So they're a significant contributor to global warming, meat and dairy production. I was involved in a, a study a couple of years ago with uh, Mike Clark, my colleague here, was the lead author. And we basically ran a, a simple climate approach and we said, well, even if we decarbonized energy production immediately, if the agricultural food system emissions just carried on business as usual, what would happen? And those 
food system emissions alone would actually take us past our one and a half degree climate target and get us quite a substantial way towards two degrees. And this is obviously extremely optimistic because we haven't and we're not going to switch off fossil fuels that quickly. And, and that is partly because there's growing human population and partly because the, the world is kind of getting richer and eating on average uh, a greater proportion of livestock-based foods. So it's exactly these trends that, that you highlight there that make it such an important issue. John, uh, I found this study um, in Science. It's, it's from 2018. It calculated that meat, aquaculture, eggs and dairy use about 83% of the world's farmland, while providing only 37% of humanity's protein consumption and 18% percent of our calories so i mean just looking at those figures it strikes me that livestock is rather inefficient uh, in terms of our food supply so that that's ultimately what it comes down to really the sustainability question of where and if livestock production fits into a sustainable food system it's essentially that you have to grow the plants which might be feed crops or it might simply be grass so you're using the area the agricultural inputs kind of your fertilizer resources and things to produce plants and then if you put that through an animal before it gets converted into a human ed edible product then you've essentially lost some of that um, so it is really just a yeah a question of efficiency and it's lost through the animal just going through its normal biology and it's not to say that it's inherently kind of unsustainable i think personally i believe there will be some smaller role for livestock in a sustainable food system but if we're just growing a huge amount of crops and then kind of inefficiently uh, processing them through animals we do arrive at some of these figures like that you're talking about which essentially points to them being yeah the inefficiency in the system. Okay, so time to take a closer look at lab-grown meat, which some also call cultivated meat or cultured meat or even cell-based meat. Uh, they all mean the same thing. But just how is it made? Basically, you take some animal cells and place them in a nutrient-filled broth so they duplicate lots of times. Then you change that broth just a little bit and put them in a bioreactor, which ends up giving you a meat cell mush that can be turned into patties or sausages or, yeah, you name it. So theoretically, you could feed the entire planet with cells taken from a single cow, as long as you get the mixture and scale right. No animal has to die for this, and you avoid the downsides of factory farming, such as animal cruelty, the extensive use of antibiotics, uh, which in turn is you know, fueling antibiotic resistances. Uh, there are no dangerous bacteria or contaminants that you'll often find in factory farming, etc. However, critics say that the cultivated meat show is essentially run by the same agribusinesses that are literally making a killing with conventional meat products, and uh, that it could reinforce the meat system as a whole by providing new opportunities for companies to expand their existing factory farming operations. However, having said that, the same accusation could be levelled at plant-based alternatives. Here in Germany, for instance, a meat giant called Wiesenhof has adopted a very successful a range of plant-based meat products. But given how expensive it still is to produce cultivated meat, it is very questionable whether such products can ever be scaled up without the investment of big business. So just to give you an idea, the first cultivated meat hamburger in 2012 cost around $325,000 to produce. 
So time to bring in somebody now who's convinced uh, that that price tag is going to drop rapidly to affordable levels as this technology advances and that cultivated meat will be a game changer, especially when it comes to the environment. Hi, my name is Saren Kell and I'm the Science and Technology Manager at the Good Food Institute Europe. The Good Food Institute is a non-profit organisation that promotes both cultivated meat and plant-based meat, and they are hoping that the market for alternative meat and dairy products will expand dramatically to 1.4 trillion US dollars by 2050. But what is the current status quo? Cultivated meat as an industry is still very much in its infancy, so a lot of the most exciting developments, I would say, are around people trying to develop what we call whole cuts. So these are products which are really designed to authentically recreate the texture of steak or chicken breasts. So using innovations like 3D printing, for example. And yeah, just a specific example on that front. So Meat Tech 3D in Israel, they recently announced that they've actually produced a four ounce cultivated steak using 3D printing. So that was really, really cool. But in reality, I think a lot of the first products that are going to be commercialized are likely to be things like burgers and sausages and nuggets, which are less complicated products and just easier to bring to market. Mm -hmm. But just that one example you mentioned there, that means in theory, I could, if I had a 3D printer, just print my own steak and, and throw it on the barbecue? <laughs> I wish it was so easy. Um, so because you are working with real animal cells, um, it's not as simple as just printing out a plastic cutout from a template mold. Cells have various different requirements for growing and also to make sure that they are the right cell types, so things like muscle and fat, and that they have access to the right nutrients, which is what we call the cell culture media. And to get all of these things right and to get them to actually replicate the real kind of, fun, the kind of 3D tissue structure of what meat tissue is really like, there's a lot of really complicated tissue engineering, cell biology, chemical engineering, process engineering involved in that process. So I wish it was so easy, but unfortunately right now we're not quite there such that it is as easy as just printing it out and putting it on the barbecue. <laughs> okay, so uh, Saren, perhaps if we look into the benefits, what would you say are the main benefits of cultivated meat? Sure. So, I mean, really, really zooming out, the most important thing about cultivated meat is that what you are producing is something which genuinely looks, tastes and cooks the same as conventional meat and is the same nutritionally and at the cellular um, level. But unlike conventional meat, it is made in a much, much cleaner and more efficient way. So why that's so powerful is the fact that we are actually therefore able to satisfy this growing global demand for meat, which really is growing. It's not going to decrease over the coming decades, um, but we can satisfy that demand with a fraction of the environmental impact. And mm. Can we perhaps have some, some data there? Could you give us an example, you know, how do the carbon footprints of cultivated meat products compare, uh, you know, to products from regular livestock farms? So because cultivated meat as an industry is as nascent as I was describing, um, there have not been a huge number of life cycle assessments and techno-economic assessments and to ones which are able to compare across different companies and different production processes. But um, the best TEA and LCA that we're aware of is a study by CE Delft. And this was a study which was the first to actually be based on data from real cultivated meat companies. So actually based on their specific production processes and the kind of high level insights that came out of that report is that if cultivated meat is made using renewable energy 
it would lead to a 92% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions when compared with beef, a 52% reduction when compared with pork, and a 17% when compared with chicken. Let's just hear what John from Oxford University has to say about this. I asked him whether cultivated meat is indeed always better for the environment than a traditional livestock product. Well, we can we can see theoretically why it certainly could be. Um, but you are displacing kind of biological processes and you do need to substitute them with something. So it's not like it just comes out of thin air. You still have some kind of nutrient input, which is probably going to come from conventional crop production still, although there's other people have speculated it could come from very low impact kind of algal production systems. So then it, it comes down to that same question of just as we would say, well, chickens can convert feed into meat more efficiently than cows. Is the cultured meat process converting those nutrient inputs more efficiently than the current livestock? And some of the early evidence looks like, yes, it is a lot better than kind of ruminants, cows and sheep and even pigs. And how energy efficient that is and what the energy source is will also be a key part of this question about overall sustainability. Because uh, right back at the beginning, I was saying our as important as agricultural emissions are, the priority has still got to be decarbonizing the energy supply. So if we're talking about imagining this new process coming through that might be quite energy demanding, we don't really haven't narrowed down the figures yet and maybe coming on scale rapidly and you know having a large production of this stuff, then how's that going to affect the pathway towards renewable energy? Um, that's the, This is the kind of bigger picture question that will ultimately need to be resolved to answer these questions about if it's more sustainable or not. Okay, so how does cultivated meat compare to conventional farming if you don't have the renewable energy to produce it and are forced to resort to fossil fuels? I put that question to Saren. If you are using exclusively fossil fuels as the energy source for cultivated meat, it would still be significantly better than conventional beef production. That being said, if you take a kind of hybrid approach where I think the figure is around 30% renewable energy in the process versus the rest being fossil fuels, you are then more sustainable than all other types of livestock farming. Um, if we look at the downsides you know, to these alternative forms, or the, let's say the aspects that you are still working on to improve, what would you say are the main aspects that still have to be improved on you know, when it comes uh, to the environmental perspective regarding cultivated meat? Yeah, I mean, I think there isn't some hidden skeleton in the closet which isn't being mentioned here. Like it really does come down to making sure that the scaled up process is as sustainable as it could be. And specifically around making sure that as much of the energy going in is renewable energy. And that is a really important point. Like conventional meat, that there are a lot of emissions associated with it that you just cannot get around. Um, we have made the processes for conventional animal agriculture as efficient as they're basically ever going to be. Whereas cultivated meat, we're only really beginning to start to optimize that. And it's so powerful that because we are electrifying the process, we have that option to feed in renewable energy. So it, it, it is really like a big groundbreaking deal because there's a potential there which we could never actually realize with conventional animal agriculture. Um, beyond that, I think potential downsides, there's, there's nothing that comes to mind. And because a lot of this has, it is still in process and in motion, the scaling up of these technologies. 
it's kind of to be determined. And that's really also why we push so hard for government investment into the research and development, not least because we need that kind of funding to get the scale up there, but also because government investment can answer and address those kinds of questions that really matter, these kind of more forward thinking, longer term questions. How can we ensure that these products are just as sustainable as they can possibly be and are um, completely nutritiously equivalent or, or more so than conventional meat? Okay, so time to take a closer look at how consumers feel about these products. And it's a bit tricky, of course, because only very few people have been able to try them. So not even Saren from the Good Food Institute has. Now, according to a survey carried out in the US and UK in 2021, some 40% were highly likely to try it, while 40 would consider it and 20% rejected it. Generation Z and millennials were more open to trying it than Generation X or baby boomers, by the way. But just how easy or difficult is it for us to change our diet and do without meat? Uh, although one could argue that cultivated meat still is real meat, something that would make it problematic for vegetarians, for starters. Time to bring in a German food sociologist on this. Uh, Germany is, after all, uh, the land of countless sausage varieties and uh, the butcher house of Europe, uh, according to activists. So let's hear from Stefan Wahlen, who's a food sociologist at Gießen University. The history has, has shown us that even though we might find theoretically nice solutions from a technological perspective and from a science perspective, there are also always people involved in their daily life, in their habits and in, in their routines. And they need to change to some extent as well, but they are rather stable and they are not going to change. So if we need to change things, it's on the one hand, of course, individual behavior, mm. or I would rather talk about practices, what people are actually doing in their daily life. However, you also need to be supported by the, the infrastructures in so doing. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that because there is a very big and strong power, like a machinery almost, that is pushing us into certain behavior patterns, isn't it? And it's, it's, it's difficult to disentangle from that. It's not just that we can say, I'm going to change tomorrow because the whole system needs to change with us, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the system. And in the end, we also see that it needs uh, political support. That, I mean, we have debates about various foodstuffs that are deemed more or less favorable uh, with regard to climate change. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting to see these debates on a more national or even international level from a sociological perspective, talk about normative discourse. So there are public debates, not only from policymakers, newspapers or podcasts contributing to that debate that might be understanding what is normal, what is the normal thing to do. Mm -hmm. And if you think about climate issues, and there has been an increasing debate, it's already a debate going on for at least a decade, not even longer that meat is less favorable compared to, for example, vegetables. And I think it's very interesting that still there has been little change. I think that we are living to a vast extent in our routines. Yeah, I mean, that, that brings us to a very philosophical question. Can we change? And how do we do it? I mean, if food is so closely tied to culture, family, religion even, it can be super personal, right? And, and people get very defensive if you start, you know, telling them what to eat or what they should be eating or should not be eating. I mean, how difficult is it to change behavior around food? 
And I would rather not speak about behavior. Behavior has always the notion that there's an individual um, enacting behavior. Um, I would rather take it from a more cultural perspective. And the question of what is culture, it has an individual component. But you also see that there are collective patterns. You stick to these collective patterns because they are con conceived as something to be normal. Because most people do not want to be uh, different. And also with consuming or eating specific foods, we um, can demonstrate that we are part of specific uh, social groups. We can change food consumption patterns and they are changing. However, they are changing in a, in a rather slow way. But continually, we did some analysis uh, some years back. I analyzed some diary data and it nicely showed that um, over a period of more than 20 years, little has changed. Uh, the, the, the woman that was the woman that was keeping this diary described their daily life and their patterns of eating, preparing food and other daily tasks. And surprisingly, the first and the last diary, they have been rather similar. Stefan, scientists, they've said that... Um in order to make our food system more sustainable, this will require shifts in farming and consumption. What role does the production of our food have in our enjoyment? You know, for example, how much do we care if the end product, you know, for instance, meat, um, a, a burger or something, you know, if it came from a lab uh, rather than from a cattle farm? Technologists, the food technologists, they come up with uh, innovative foodstuff. And I think that you can see with the vegan and vegetarian alternatives. So it's not the lab meat, but rather substitute products that we currently see on the market that are gimmicking the food that we're currently eating. And they are rather successful with it because I think that the meat patty, it's a meat patty. And in the end, uh, we don't know how much meat in the patty actually is. And I don't know if we really care about the amount of meat that is in it. There are a lot of varieties. In Germany, you have all these different kinds of sausages. And if you really look on the packaging on how much meat you can find in a sausage nowadays, I'm always surprised to see how little meat actually is in a, in a barbecuing sausage, for example. Mm -hmm. And the question is of how it is produced. And I think that producers might have much more power than the individual consumers to change what is eaten. But still, that uh, taste is something very important, that the way that we are enjoying our food is something which is really important. The pleasures that are uh, associated with the, the ways that we might be sharing food, but also the ways that we are eating. I mean, if we talk about the appreciation of food, um, how, how would this change our relation to food and the meaning of food in our, in our lives if, if, it, if it all came from the lab? First of all, I, I don't believe that we might have only lab-grown meat in the future. People identify with specific foods. Mm -hmm. uh, think about local cuisines, national diets, or even regional diets, uh, the Mediterranean diets, linking up to um, food that is regionally grown. The relationship that we might have to meat it might even be turning a little bit into the opposite. That's, um, I mean, there are some initiatives that try to um, link the producer and the consumer even more in order to identify also with how the, the, the food has been produced. And mm. I don't know if that might be working for the lab-grown meat as well. So Stefan doesn't see cultivated meat taking the market by storm anytime soon. Uh, so what is Seren's timeline for the breakthrough of cultivated meat? Um, so I guess to answer the question when, one of the most important questions we have to ask is 
regulation and, and what, what regulation is going to look like. So Singapore's food regulator was the first in the world to approve the sale in December 2020. Um, and then a year later, in December 2021, they then approved a second product from the same company. In Europe specifically, we haven't yet had an application being made to the EU. So it is likely to be at least two years before people in Europe are able to access cultivated meat at all. And several years before it becomes available at large enough scales to reach supermarkets. And then that's more a technical and R&D question. In both cases, the kind of ask really is towards government. So creating an enabling environment and probably most importantly, taking seriously that this is a new sector, that it has this huge potential to displace a large amount of the greenhouse gas emissions coming from our food system. And that in order to really realize that potential, it's not just in the remit of startup companies with privately funded capital. This is a kind of an institutional and a, and a public sector focus and it has to be addressed in that way so much more open access research going to space to make sure we can address some of the technical challenges needing to be addressed to enable that scale up and then just getting it out there and having an enabling environment around the distribution and sales so the regulation point i mentioned also things about kind of where it can be sold and what it can be called things around labeling laws we are seeing some governments being incredibly supportive in this way, especially Israel and Singapore, who have been leading globally in supporting the development. But Europe really does just have to join them in that race and make cultivated meat an option for everyone. Otherwise, we will essentially be left behind, I think. And finally, let's bring back John just one last time to hear how he views the chances of cultivated meat becoming the new normal one day. So I think we have seen and we will continue to see changes in our food and in our farming so you know half a century ago there just was not oil seed rape production in the uk and now it's one of the main crops that many farmers will grow in the rotation so we do get big changes happening quite soon but in terms of when cultured meat is available kind of at scale for the average consumer i think ever since the kind of first cultured burger was eaten in 2012 we've been told repeatedly this is just a few years away a kind of mass production and um, we're not there yet obviously <laughs> so i think some of the timelines have been a bit ambitious when they've been stated there but ultimately i think this is a societal question that we haven't really engaged with properly yet and i feel that the argument has become a bit polarized um and that's presented things in a way that are actually just unachievable um, because we've switched off the average consumer by maybe being a bit heavy-handed in some of this messaging. But this conversation about, okay, we know the food system is damaging and we know we need to change it, but how do we actually change it and what do we want that to look like? Do we want to keep some areas of grazing cows because we simply like them <laughs> or no actually do we want a more radical redesign and spare up land for other carbon or biodiversity purposes and i don't think we're gonna get the answer or get to real change until we have this more nuanced conversation okay so time for my main takeaways first off Cultivated meat could lead to a 92% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions when compared with beef, a 52% reduction when compared to pork, and a 17% reduction when compared with chicken. 
I think those really are remarkable figures that will stick with me. That's why I've just repeated them for you as well. Um, of course, these figures, they only apply if renewable energy is used. So it once again comes down to expanding renewables ASAP across the board. Cultivated meat would help us free up a lot of land and uh, the production process doesn't involve the killing of any animals, which personally I find great. However, it still requires animal cells to be sourced, so we would still be keeping livestock to a certain degree. And uh, as critics point out, it may extend the lifespan of companies uh, involved with conventional factory farming and uh, who may see this rather new technology as a means of diversifying their portfolio, so to speak, a bit like um, oil companies who invest in renewables while holding on to their more lucrative core business. So, yeah, of course... That is debatable. You know, you know do you want uh, these businesses involved um, or do you need them to actually, you know, really scale this up in the first place? But I think one of the key aspects overall is consumer acceptance. And uh, even if all the boxes on sustainability and animal welfare, etc. were ticked, replacing meat with cultivated meat will only work if it pretty much looks the same, tastes the same or better. All considered, it sounds to me like cultivated meat is probably not the silver bullet uh, to solving our meat problem globally, um, at least not in the immediate future. And uh, the problem is that we don't really have the time to wait any longer than 20 years to decarbonize the farming sector because we will miss our climate goals if we do. Given this addiction that we seem to have uh, to meat, um, it seems like the only chance um, that we've got is to push for more products that mimic meat really well so starting with plant-based patties and sausages for instance which are already uh, widely available and um, at the same time yeah maybe as a backup it does make sense to develop affordable cultivated meat products for the mass market um, for the future you know just in case you never know we, we might need them to meet our targets in the end and uh, who's to say that in time they might become the new normal my name is neil king Take it easy and take care. And if you'd like to hear more episodes of On the Green Fence, they're available on your favourite podcast provider. As, of course, is Inside Europe. This week, sound engineer Ziad Abu Sleiman has been riding the faders here in the studio. And I'm Helen Sini. Thanks for joining me. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. Germany.